Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I, I do, I've had a rough morning. I, I may or may not have lost my, my AirPods, and then my computer didn't start, and then uh, it's, it's, been, it's been rough. The, the F- Apple first, gods world prob- are... first world problems to be sure. But... Yeah, that's true. I was about to say the Apple gods are frowning upon you for some reason. Oh, maybe it's a preemptive strike against what we're going to talk about <laughs> later today. Yeah, maybe indeed. Uh, our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring Exponent. Uh, MailChimp has been around since 2001. It started as a side project funded by various web development jobs. Now they're the world's leading email marketing platform, sending more than a billion emails a day. MailChimp democratizes technology for small businesses, including Stratechery, creating innovative products that empower their customers to grow. Our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring Exponent, as they do every week. Yep. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. So we generally don't spend a lot of time doing sort of product reviews, uh, mm. in part because we probably learned our lesson with the Apple Watch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, did we want? <laughs> Which wasn't a product review. And actually, I think we're probably going to get back to the Apple Watch in, in some respects in, in, today's, in today's podcast, but hopefully in a much more congenial sort of oh, manner. Oh, absolutely. Constructive. Absolutely. We've learned a little bit since then ourselves. So we generally don't talk a lot about like products, and so we are going to a little bit today. But I think we're going to talk about the Mac Pro, which is not really a topic that matters to the vast majority of people mm. listening to us because most people don't buy Mac Pros. But that's almost why it's an interesting thing to talk about because there's so many – I think there's a lot of interesting insights into Apple mm. itself, its culture, the way it makes decision-making, the way it screws up that is really sort of interesting. Yeah, and and you can. It's a. I agree. It's like a very interesting lens into some of these elements. So let's dig in. So, Apple. This goes back to like 2010, I think, is the last time Apple released a Mac Pro that was in the traditional sort of tower shape, and people affectionately call the cheese grater because the front of it kind of looked like looked like a cheese grater, hmm. and this big honking, you know, aluminum, super heavy sort of thing that sat on your desk and had the most powerful processors. You could have two processors into it, or you could have one. All the multiple cores, you know, the high performance memory, uh, all like all the t- top of the line sort of. Sort mm-hmm. of computer matched up, you know, with any PC. It was the absolute best performance you could get, and it ran OS ten, which was what what people wanted. Mm. That computer was last updated in two thousand ten, and it was no longer updated. People were like, what's going on? Is you know, where where is where is the next computer? And in twenty thirteen, when this sort of like angst was kind of you know really bubbling to the surface at WWC that year in June, Apple unveiled a new version of the Mac Pro, which was this black cylinder looked amazing. They had this amazing product video as Apple is, is want to do. And and Phil Schiller famously said, you know, can't innovate my ass. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, what, what else is there to say? Well, it became particularly ironic because the, the product finally launched like six or seven months later, the very end of 2013, beginning of 2014. And that exact same product with the exact same configuration is still for sale today, four years later. I, I suspect there might be a joke somewhere in there about Phil Schiller's ass, but I probably shouldn't make it. <laughs> I have no idea what that joke might be, and I'm pretty sure I don't. I don't want to know. Uh, but you know, needless to say, the angst in the Apple computer about this about this computer has has reached a, a fever pitch, such that a completely unprecedented event happened this week, in which Apple invited five journalists to Cupertino to basically to announce a few things. One, that they were going to to basically 
put a price drop on the current Mac Pro, which was disguised as a, you know, the mid-level options became the lowest level options and, and so on and so forth. Hmm. One. Number two, there's going to be basically an iMac Pro. I don't know what we call that, but it's going to be an iMac with more capabilities that professionals care about. Uh, two, that's going to be released later this, this year. And then three, sometime, not this year, so everyone presumes next year, but Apple didn't say next year, there's going to be a brand new Mac Pro that is going to have a high thermal envelope, which means you can have the fastest GPUs and CPUs, and will be a modular design and easily upgraded. It is, I mean, you said unprecedented, but like I, I feel like a little bit more of a double click is required. Like this is an organization that is renowned for its secrecy. Like it holds its products close to its chest. And I, for as long as I can remember, I've been, I mean, I've loved the products. I'm fascinated by the company. In so long as I can remember, I cannot think of another example of them pre, I mean, they pre-announced the Mac Pro, like sometimes they'll bring out hardware or products that aren't quite ready, kind of like a teaser and less so with hardware, but the Mac Pro, but I have never heard them go it's never got to the point where they're going they they've had to come out and talk about a product that they don't even have to show just to reassure people that it's coming out like this is the company where Steve Jobs like the MacBook Air comes out in the manila folder and it's like one more thing like the extent to which this is just so completely out of character such new territory is crazy yeah it really is and there's been it really speaks to the fact, and I said this word a few minutes ago, is that this was a mess. This is a screw up, mm. and this is why this is super interesting, right? Screw ups are fun. They're interesting. They're interesting to think about. Apple clearly has screwed up the Mac Pro line. They all but uh, they basically apologized for mm. <laughs> this week for there being such a delay, and we'll get into some of the yes product attributes that were a screw up, but. The reason why this is so interesting is an axiom of like sort of my analysis. I think I might have said this a couple weeks ago, but it's worth repeating is it's really fascinating to, especially when a company screws up or does something that you don't understand or don't agree with, start with the presumption that the people who made that decision are smart in doing their best. Yeah. And if they're smart in doing their best, how is it that they managed to screw up so badly? And you basically this is why this is i think a fascinating topic to unpack the company that is the gold standard that seems to do everything right that's the most profitable company in the world utterly and completely screwed up one of their products and how did that happen it's uh, you first told me about that question uh, that you used it as an interview question and i have i think it's such a great way of looking at the world because it's so simple from the outside to just assume oh they're idiots oh they did this wrong oh but no and especially not in this case like this you're right this is the gold standard this is the product company that everybody looks up to so what on earth is going on and what can we learn as a result from studying it i i think it's a fantastic approach and it's not just it's not just done for the the joy of 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 dancing on on a mistake like there's so much that you can gain from like from digging into stuff like this so it's interesting to go back to 2013 i think 2013 was a really interesting time for apple that was two years after steve jobs had passed away it was six months after johnny ive had supplanted 
uh, Scott Forstall as the head of not just hardware but also software design. Mm. You know, and there and Apple was also under sort of pressure externally, at least as far as the popular narrative went, because Samsung you know, it was kind of ascendant, and it, it, Apple was like, it, actually, this is and also the most important thing about 2013 is that's when I started Shacheri, and it was funny. I actually got I got so much traction out of the popular narrative that. Apple was in trouble and Samsung was ascendant by saying, no, that's not true. Actually, Samsung is the one that has a problem because as Android gets better, they have no real differentiation, mm-hmm. whereas Apple will be totally fine. And so my appreciation to the uh, popular press narrative of 2013 for helping get your check off the ground. But that was I think that that went into the can't innovate my ass sort of comment that Schiller made. Right. It was it was it wasn't a pushback just about the Mac Pro. It was about like the popular narrative around Apple as a whole. Yeah, I, I mean the the whole Samsung Apple thing is uh, is probably worthy of a podcast in and of itself and the history of that because it it was that period of time was basically where people drew parallels between the the uh, Mac versus PC wars and started to draw parallels between um, how that was gonna how that played out for Apple and for Microsoft slash Intel and we're starting to make the same case that this is this was going to happen with Apple and um, Samsung and of course it turned out not to be the case but the fact that Samsung managed to get there at all was was super interesting and the other thing that i remember from this point in time was apple's long-standing uh advertising company cheat day i think it was around this time that the head of that sent a note to schiller saying you know apple's apple's not innovating and like you're in trouble and here's the chance for an aggressive ad campaign and i think it was around that time and i wonder if part of why schiller got up on stage so crankily was uh partly as a result of that it's funny. I totally forgot about that email. You just sent you just sent the link to me, and they literally said, "This is Apple's ad agency." I'm going to quote: "We understand that this moment is pretty close to 1997." <laughs> <laughs> this is 2013 when the, the the iPhone is still dominant. Apple's at the peak. Of, you know, still making record profits. That is amazing. I totally mm. forgot about that. You know, needless to say, the the narrative around Apple was was a little out of control at, 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 in 2013. <laughs> yeah, Shilla. We'll put Shilla, this link in the show notes. We'll put this link in the show notes. It's, I totally it's worth reading. I, I mean, Cheat Day is like the, the long-standing Apple ad agency from, from forever. Like Jobs had a relationship with the founder. and They almost got – I think Apple created its own internal ad agency partly in response to this email. It's worth reading. And the response that Shilla <laughs> – The response yep. that Shilla This Schiller is not 1997. Had. Nothing like it in any way. In 1997, <laughs> Apple had no products to market. We had a company making so little money we were six months from out of business. We were the dying, beleaguered Apple in needing of a hitting a research button that would take years to get turned around. Not the world's most successful tech company making the world's best products, having created the smartphone and tablet form factors and leading content distribution software marketplaces. Not the company that everyone wants to copy and compete with. Yes, I am shocked. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I remember seeing this and feeling... I I'd worked in consulting. Like we're getting a little far afield, but I worked in consulting and imagine being on a uh, a services side, receiving an email like this from a client, and just thinking, "Where is the nearest hole for me to crawl into and die?" I know because you could so the ad agency was so wrapped up in their own importance and in role of like in Apple and like probably still patting themselves on the back for the Think Different campaign that they, they said just an unbelievably stupid thing. That is that's funny. Um, anyhow, Mac Pro. I think it, it, 
it's worth though walking through. I, I kind of I was gonna write about this uh, a big thing this week. I didn't um, it, it, for a few different reasons. In part because I don't really get into the whole product thing, but I think it's kind of worth it's worth sort of talking about in this podcast about what how did Apple screw up this product? Because I think there's actually a few sort of distinct mistakes that Apple made with mm. the Mac Pro that are not just interesting in and of themselves, but are interesting in what they say about Apple as a whole. And I think mm. are you've seen shades of similar mistakes in other products. Right. So kind of the first one is, just to go back to 2013, I, they built the wrong product. And I thought this, I'm not sure if I wrote about this, so I can't point to anything, but I mean, what the new MacBook Pro was, it, or sorry, MacBook, what the new Mac Pro was, it went from being this big tower with you could put all kinds of stuff into it, and it was cooled very well, to this beautiful sort of cylindrical shape that had one CPU and two GPUs, graphical processing units. And of those two graphical processing units, one was used for computing, and one was used for act- the actual display of of video on the screen and it was a real bet on this future of gpus kind of being the center of computing which by the way is still a thing right we talked about uh cars and and artificial intelligence like that both of which benefit from the gpu doing specialized kinds of computing Mm. and do it much more rapidly than a centralized general purpose processor can but the kind of the problem was was there was two problems one apple was kind of prescribing what this computer could be used for if you were doing development like a developer for example or any sort of pro work that didn't depend on having a gpu to do compute you just wanted a general purpose processor it wasn't the best computer it was the worst computer because you could no longer have two cpus for example Uh, and it became more integrated and less modular as a product in a way that really kind of worked against what it meant to be a pro computer what are pros and that's part of the problem what is a pro a pro is someone who is creating something using their computer that they're hoping to sell, right? And so this is a tool. The computer is a tool. It's not a toy. It is a tool for them to do their work and almost by definition to limit what that tool can be used for is to work against it being a pro device. To a certain extent, all these computers are tool, but this is a performance tool and it, it needs to prioritize performance and i think that's what you're driving at with like they built the wrong product like i remember when this thing came out and seeing it and thinking oh my gosh that's a damn cool looking thing like i wish like i kind of want to buy one but when you because you wanted it as a toy yeah because it looks so beautiful but when you understand the context of the needs of uh what pro users require and performance and that as a result of it looking good, they compromised the core f- the the core reason for the product being. It's they put the cart before the horse. Like this, actually prioritized the wrong thing. Like the thing that is required for this device to deliver on on the promise of what its users need is outright performance. And when you compromise that in order to make it look pretty, that actually doesn't represent good design anymore. The irony of it is it represents bad design. Exactly. Because, I mean, what's the famous saying, right? Design is not just the form, it's the function, right? It's it's how something is used. And this was an example of where the form overruled the function. And it was bad enough at the beginning, right? Because they, they, they overly prescribed the sort of what it would be. 
it reduced flexibility and it was also more expensive. But mm. it got even worse when it wasn't upgraded. And now we it was kind of sus- suspected this all along, but now we know for a fact after this meeting with, with with those journalists that it had a thermal problem. You couldn't install newer GPUs in it, or especially the big honking ones that are that are used today for all kinds of creative work because. It, it was too small. It couldn't handle the thermal load. It got too hot inside. And I've heard anecdotally that even the one that's been sold for four years now it has a massive repair problem because GPUs just burn themselves out all the time. And we're talking about a three-year-old, you know, an old sort of old technology that's still in there. It's it's so interesting because like this is almost reflective of the same problem that pro users were complaining about with the MacBook Pro that it's it looks great like the, the this is the it's this this MacBook Pro it's almost like the lesson that Apple's learned super well is that uh you know progress represents smaller lighter like it looks better but there's a segment of the user base where actually those things don't matter. Like it's not it, like, yes, it's nice to have. And actually, this is probably one of the things that I appreciate about a Mac Pro versus a bog standard Windows box or like your, your average Windows PC, that it looks nice. I want to put it on my desk. But that's not the thing that matters most. The thing that matters most is that there is as much performance as is required for me to be able to do this task as well as possible. And it feel it, it's it's the it's symptomatic of the same thing that that design almost has a little bit too much of a like it's the tails wagging the dog as opposed to figuring out what people need and like what is core for for delivering a great experience first and then building a a thing that looks beautiful and is well physically designed it's almost like they started with the physical design first like it needs to be beautiful and then we'll back in and see how much performance we can fit in as a result yeah and the other thing to remember is in 2013 this wasn't the only example of that uh, it was later in 2013 that Apple released the iPad Air, which remains one of the most uh, stupefying product introductions I've ever seen from Apple. And I wrote about it at the time in an article called Wither Liberal Arts that I will put in the show notes. Mm. And what was so striking about – there's two things that were just kind of mind-blowing about the introduction. The first was that in the presentation itself, no one ever actually used an iPad. Like there was no demo, there was no actually using it. They just they they had an iPad, and they showed its physical dimensions, but there was no actual use for it. It was just it was purely about the industrial design, mm. and that was they doubled down on that. The you know Apple always shows the commercial that they launch new devices on the the new commercial for the iPad. Like it's it, I'm on it. I'll, I'll put a link to the commercial too. It shows in a pencil, and the camera slowly moves around. And that's it. The point of the commercial is that an iPad Air is thinner than a pencil. <laughs> like that, that was it. That, that was the whole entire commercial. It was a reduction of the iPad to purely being a physical device. And the, the aesthetics and beauty of that physical device with a complete sort of completely ignoring what it, what, what's the point of buying it? Why are you buying it? If I want to buy something that's beautiful, I will go buy a, a beautiful painting from my wall or I'll go buy a luxury handbag, one of our favorite topics, right? <laughs> it, it was amazing. 
I'm sure you have watched, and I'm guessing a number of our listeners have watched those introduction videos when a product, a new product is released. They interview some of the execs on the team and talk about the product. And I was always struck about the way that um, Johnny Ive talked about the materials and, and, and how it felt and, you know, all these physical characteristics. And it felt like listening to an artist describe, just like what you said, like describe some beautiful piece of artwork that you'd expect to find in MoMA. And it felt like the starting point in instances like this where this problem has been apparent has been the the starting point has been let's build something first that will that will get us into MoMA. And then secondarily we will um we'll we'll worry about the how how the thing actually performs or what it could be used for, like explaining to people why they actually need it. And that's a real problem. Well, I think that's really been the problem for the iPad. I mean, and I've written about this a a few different times. I mean, one of my all-time favorite Steve Jobs presentations was the iPad 2. And it wasn't the iPad 2 itself. It was That was when Apple unveiled iMovie and GarageBand for for the iPad. And particularly after the GarageBand presentation, Jobs walks out. And he's like, he's super emotional. Like, he's almost tearing up. He's like, now anybody can make music. And you think about Jobs' passion for music and and his passion for for computers and the idea of computers being the bicycle of the mind and it enabling human creativity and enabling one's humanity to be expressed. And I actually tweeted at the time, not knowing that Jobs was as sick as he as we soon found out he was, that I think this is Jobs' last keynote. It just came like you could this sense of accomplishment in the way he said that, like this is my life's work and I've achieved it. Like the iPad more than any device, even more than the iPhone, was such a pure expression of that that driving force for jobs. And it was so disheartening two years later to have Apple introduce an iPod, iPad without a without any software at all. It was it was just and that was part of what doomed the, I mean the device is still fine they're still selling selling them but that's that's so much of a problem with with it is where was the vision yeah. what, what is this device for and you have apple changing apple every 6 months is changing what it is is a pc replacement no it's not it's this is that is whatever to be a pc replacement is such a waste of potential for this device it's so frustrating any pc job that requires a keyboard and yeah. a, a a mouse is going to be better on a PC. It's just going to be better on a PC. But there's so many things humans want to do that don't necessarily need a keyboard and a trackpad. It's one of my great frustrations is what happened to the iPad. There's so many ways to express yourself, whether it be music, whether it be art, whether it be who knows what sorts of things that were never realized in part yes. because there was no vision for for this product. Yeah, it's... It's funny, like when Jobs passed, there were all the 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 doomsayers, the naysayers saying Apple's dead, Apple's dead, and I, I mean, I reflexively tend not to listen to those people just because, like, I want to understand. Like, give me the reason. Like, help me understand. Don't just say great leader, great business leader. Like, help me understand what's missing. And you can start to see in this and in the watch, in like when you talk about vision and editing, like you can see the pieces that are that were present while he was still there cook in terms of like that 
that fierce operational effectiveness and Ive's amazing design prowess. And those cylinders are still firing and still driving the products and the product lines forward in the way that they they always have. Like the the the, the ability to deliver on these products, uh, the fact that they're always beautifully designed with the Apple Watch, or or the fact that they they are so that the iPad is so beautiful that Apple thinks that it can just introduce it and show how thin it is beside a pencil. But the the what you're describing here is like the perfect angle in for explaining what it is that actually is missing as a result this this editing and this vision functionality like the 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 starting point for any product the reason why it exists it's almost like the most critical component and they are they're second guessing or they're approximating they don't have the sharpness of vision that existed while he was still there yeah, and, and the way this ties into the the Mac Pro is there wasn't the aesthetics became it was too powerful. Like it was too much of a priority, right? There wasn't the the pushback about what is the functionality of this. Again, not saying I mean Jobs may have seen early renditions of the Mac of the Mac Pro early, and heaven knows Jobs has made his own mistakes favoring aesthetics over anything else. Yeah, you know, so not to not say that this is all because Steve Jobs wasn't there. Just to be super clear, but. It's interesting to look at this time in Apple's history, and it was a it was a time where aesthetics really seemed to be the priority over and above everything else. And you mentioned the Apple Watch; same thing with the Apple Watch introduction. There was no story, there was no vision about what this product was supposed to be. There was a lot of discussion about how beautifully engineered it was, and what a great you know how great it looked, and it does look great, and it is beautifully engineered. And the bands, the like all the industrial design components are amazing, fantastic invention. But what was the job? What was the job to be done? What was the vision for this device? Why? Why should I buy this? And and I mean and. The irony of the whole thing is if if you go back to that earlier discussion around design, it, you can't actually – you can make it beautiful to look at, but it can't be beautifully designed until you have worked so hard around that reason for being. And the, the crystallization of that why that is necessary for a product – and so often when these trip-ups have happened, it feels like if you were to trace it back, like that lack of why – is what's missing. And then everybody's doing their best, the best that they possibly can around it, designing it beautifully, making sure operationally it's done. But the the why is missing and there's only so far you can take all those elements without that pushing to that, like all through all that ambiguity and that discomfort and like, why, wait, guys, why are we actually building this? If you haven't crystallized that, then it's so hard to succeed in all the other domains. So to, to go back to the Mac Pro, what, what I think a really underappreciated issue here is, so they built the wrong product, right? And it was just the wrong product for the sort of people that wanted to buy it. It ended up being a wrong product and they, they realized they couldn't really update it. They couldn't put new GPUs in it without it overheating. And they were kind of, they're kind of stuck, right? And the reason they're stuck is... To build a new device like the Mac Pro, like how what went into building that? They had to do all the R and D, whether the industrial design team, the hardware engineering team, to actually build this innovative new. It was innovative. This innovative new design 
So they, they spent a lot of money doing that. And then remember, it was built in the US. It was in this very heavily automated manufacturing plant. They had to not just build the machine. They had to build the machines to make the machine. All those had to be designed and built yeah. and paid for. And we're talking, I mean, we, we don't, I don't have this exact number, but I, I would guesstimate hundreds of millions of dollars possibly well into a billion dollars if you think of all the costs the r&d costs the 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 factory costs all the upfront costs and why would they invest so much well they're going to make it back over the lifetime of the product right and this is something that people always why it's always hard to actually figure out what the actual margins are on a product because there's the materials that go into it, but you also have to pay back all your fi- your upfront fixed costs. You know, over time, that's why people about leverage, right? The more devices you make, the more you spread out those fixed costs over all the devices, which means the, the the margins are higher on those devices. The point being, Apple clearly invested a lot of money in a flawed product, and that's a really that means they were stuck. They were really stuck. Come whenever they figured out that it was that it was flawed. This speaks so deeply to the thing. One of the things that makes Apple so different, and how you think about developing hardware and hardware products versus software products. Like uh, we've we've spoken a lot about why the company isn't necessarily a great services company because the nature of hardware when you it, it takes, uh, there's a lead time to get it right and then you crystallize it and you ship it and then it's probably not going to be another 12 months until you get another revision. That's what we see on the consumer side. Well, just to, I mean, just to jump in, you're, you're referring to a phone, right? Where right. Apple does do a new design every year. Why can they afford to do that? Because they ship so many units of a phone in one year that they will invest a ton of money in the tooling, in the design, in the R&D, because they can recoup it back over all the phones they sell in one year, right? In the case of a Mac Pro, it's different because they, they, I bet they were – and they basically said this in the interview. They were planning to sell this design for like 10 years. So th- when they – spent all that money up front, it was with the presumption they would make back the money over the next decade. And this this exactly speaks to how how companies that build hardware products think about the world and are forced to think about the world so differently from services companies, which are just on this constant iteration. Because Google, I mean, obviously there are checks and balances in terms of like how they update code and how they push it. And as you get bigger, like people are more eyes on the code, so on and so forth. But the amount of effort and investment that's required in order to change a shipping product and everything that supports that from a software company it's tiny compared to a hardware company and that's why they have to be that's that's where this attention to detail comes in because in order for the economics to work they have to absolutely get it right because if it if they don't get it right they've made this massive investment in order to sell this thing over this period of time whether it's 1 year or 10 but if people don't buy it like that investment goes goes wanting that it's such it's such a great point. I mean, yeah. Here's an example of what happens when you get it wrong. Right? Apple is going to have to eat all the money that they invested in the current version of the Mac Pro. It's it's basically flushed down the toilet because they're not going to make it back over over the next you know seven to eight years like they planned on doing it. Right? And this is a reason why there's always been sort of one of the reasons there's always like hardware companies trade at a worse multiple than software companies. It's not just that hardware traditionally has lower margins. It's that the risk 
of a hardware company screwing it up yeah. is so much greater than a software company. You can ship a software fix. Once you sh- once you ship hardware, it's shipped. And yeah, to to your to your point, you it's not just that Apple like we talk about Apple being bad at services because they're so focused on delivering a finished product. And I, I wrote that piece last year, Apple's organizational crossroads about it, it's it's a necessity. They have to make it perfect because the cost of not being perfect when you're building hardware is vastly, vastly, vastly greater than if you're shipping than if you're shipping software. It's just not even remotely the same, which means every part of your company, the way you the way you structure yourself internally, the way you progress through product milestones. You can't do agile development of hardware products, right? Mm. You can't do a scrum and we're going to develop a new MacBook Pro this week. No, it, it's it's a very deliberate process that that you can't screw up because if you screw up it costs you literally like nine to ten figures in loss what's shocking is not that they screwed this up what's shocking is how few things they managed to screw up like the inverse of it like given the lead times required and the investments required i mean the the extent to which they're able to deliver and especially given this context of like more recently they've been approximating the fundamental why like it is just incredible to fathom how you can turn out what is effectively this hit machine that gets it right time after time making these 9 and 10 figure bets and just continuing to get it right it is truly remarkable when you when you frame it that way right and that's why every time we've talked about apple's services is what I, I we've always taken the time to say like be careful what you wish for, right? Because if you think about what, what what is the thing, what was the point of that Apple's organizational crossroads article? It was that to be an effective services company, you have to have a completely different mindset and approach to product development. Mm. Because when you're building a hardware product, the advantage of building a hardware product is that the most of the variables are known. So it may take a lot of time to figure out all the you know all the difficult things about it, but you can figure them out, right? If you're serving a web application over the internet or or you know, trying to incentivize lots of small shopkeepers to like get Apple Pay or whatever the service du jour you want to talk about is, mm. you're dealing with an effectively infinite number of variables, which means you can never centrally plan everything from the beginning. You have to build an adaptive learning iterative system that will respond to the way things are going and change itself and iterate itself. And this goes all the way down to the organization. You know, Google has to be a a responsive, iterative approach to product development because they there's no way they can really proscribe and understand ahead of time how their services are going to be used or accessed or whatever. So they have to be able to, to change it on the fly. And that approach, though, is terrible for hardware development, right? You can't be flexible and, and wishy-washy and, oh, we'll just change, we'll fix prob- problems as they happen when it comes to hardware. It's too late. Yeah. And I mean, in, in the, in that context, it's given they don't make mistakes because they can't afford to. And then they have this culture and this, this element of perfection. Like from an organizational perspective, the extent to which it must be, I mean, it's painful for any human being to, to acknowledge that they were wrong. But in the context of, of, of what we just talked about, to 
to acknowledge that you're wrong is actually pretty impressive. And it's difficult to do in any corporate culture, to be fair. Like the the extent to which you play these games of emperor has no clothes and you don't want to be the one to, to come and acknowledge the bad news. But to their absolute credit, they did front up and say, hey, like we screwed this up um, and we need to fix it. Yeah. And same thing with the watch. You, you know, they... they- yeah. Realizing, oh, it's going to be health and fitness, and actually having a vision for it and clearly defined. Right. No, in the, it's one of those, this is an example, just like the services thing, where implied in the criticism is also praise. Implied in the criticism of Apple not being an iterative sort of culture that is well tuned to delivering services. And again, the point of that Apple's already crossroads, crossroads post is that they should have a separate organization mm. that that can be developed that way. And but the implied in that is Apple's really good at building products, is really good at building hardware. And same thing in the case of of talking about these mistakes. Like the great the greatest thing about this is Apple admitting that they screwed it up despite the fact all everything was pushing them to not admit it, yes. right? Because that means flushing a lot of money down the point. I mean, say, saying you were wrong. It means Phil Schiller looking like an idiot for standing on stage saying, can't innovate my ass when he innovated himself into a thermal corner. Hmm. Right? <laughs> uh, no, I think we're getting closer, to, to, our, I think we're getting closer yeah. to our Schiller ass joke. Yeah, I know. You made it. Wow. You were the one that said you didn't want to go there too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, we, we haven't quite, quite hold it yet. <laughs> So, but but that gets into the other thing, though, and the very fair criticism is why still? Okay, granted, it's hard to admit mistakes. Granted, it meant admitting that we waste a bunch of money. Uh, it still took a really long time to get to this point, right? It's 2017. The this version, uh, this was announced four years ago in 2013. It's not going to come out till 2018 at the earliest. Mm. Like, what took Apple so long to fix this problem? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. I I can't help but um, disentangle this from from what happened with the MacBook Pro and all the criticism that they got there. And again, it's this notion that they're this incredibly successful consumer company now, and they've learned a lot of lessons about that. And we have these fully functioning cylinders of great um, great operational improvement um, and great design still firing. And seeing that applied to the MacBook Pro, like it gets thinner, it looks prettier. But that's not what that's not what these pro users are demanding, and all the uproar that that happened there. I I wonder whether that was that was what tipped the okay. We really need to do something about this because we there's a risk here that we actually lose this segment altogether. We lose like if we don't have a Mac Pro, that the people who rely on that hardware. Um, uh, to to use applications in the ecosystem, whatever pro applications they might be. Like if they go away, then the app developers start going away, and then we we already have this criticism about the MacBook Pro. Like m- maybe this becomes a tipping point for losing pro users altogether. Yeah, I do suspect that was probably the trigger. And Craig Federici something about they've been think they've realized it for more than six months. Uh, that. That event was six months and two weeks ago. So, uh, <laughs> it, it also the fact that it's not coming till next year, right? We'll get into more like the sort of timeline. But I, I do think I do want to go back to to the iPad because I think there's kind of a a third angle here to the screw up beyond the financial one and beyond the sort of you know focusing on aesthetics over mm. understanding what this product is. The reason why the iPad was 
in my estimation, has not been as successful as it could have been is because the ecosystem hasn't developed to support what it could be. I mean, this is something we've talked about many times, I've written about multiple times, that to realize the potential of the iPad, the iPad is very much a, it, it, we'll just look at it. It's a blank screen. That's that's what it is. It, the analogy is a blank sheet of paper. And what needs to be created on that, it, 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 it has to be, developers have to figure it out, right? They have to figure out what can this device be used for that is unique and powerful and makes it that you, not only you need to buy an iPad, but you need to keep buying iPads and get higher performance. You can do more and more difficult work, right? An iPad problem isn't just getting new users. It's, it's people still using their iPad 2s to watch Netflix, right? right. And the reason here is, is the fostering the ecosystem. There was no business model for these products. There is no business model through the App Store, and there has been for a long time, and belatedly Apple's making moves in the last, you know, last year or so, but there is no business model to build, to make the risk, to make the investment to build fully realized, powerful applications with the knowledge that you could make money on them, not just on day one, but over time. Yeah. And, and it, you know, this is a very long-standing criticism of Apple by by me. Yeah, I mean, it, it, oh, sorry, I don't let me interrupt you in the long-standing criticism. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, just this. this <laughs> you know, you go back. I, I always remember, and I, I one of my very early articles directly was talking about this: uh, why Apple doesn't enable sustainable business models on the App Store. And I went back to that that Macworld keynote in 1998 where Steve in Boston, Steve Jobs is standing on stage and the, the grand visage of Bill Gates is over his head talking mm. about Microsoft's investment at Apple and people are booing Gates and Jobs like, no, like we have to put, a, put away our rivalry with Microsoft and we can't say that, you know, we can both succeed. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And it was a great speech, but it was, it was humiliating, right? Apple had to, and Jobs had to prostrate themselves in, in, in front of Microsoft to save them. Because Microsoft Office mattered more than an Apple did. Adobe Photoshop mattered more than an Apple did. And I strongly believe that Apple swore never again. It will never again be held hostage to applications that people care about more than the device that they run on. And I think that's always been a problem with the App Store. It's like it will never be the case that an app becomes more important than the device that it runs on. Yeah, I mean, like, look at the iPhone and the amount of value, and it's almost like they they cheated. Like, like the extent to which the iPhone has broken through as a consumer device, and the sheer weight of users means that if you launch a successful application on that, you're going to do very well. But the iPad, despite the similarities, the iPad is not the iPhone, and the nature of the applications that will succeed on that are very different. And if you take that consumer model to to the ecosystem and apply it to something that is much more specialized in nature, it's not enough. And it it feels like it, it, it to your point, it feels like this is part of the reason why the product is. I like I love my spaceship analogy. I keep reusing it, but it feels like it's part of the reason why the product has failed. To 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 like exit gravity and out like break 
break gravity and get out in, into like orbit because the, the, the applications that it's crying out for, the ecosystem hasn't been satisfactorily developed, sufficiently developed in order for them to flourish, in order for people to find the right tool to draw on that blank canvas. Like the tool manufacturers haven't shown up because the, the, the guys making the canvas haven't made it easy for them. I think something that has always been very culturally difficult for Apple is ever admitting or appreciating that they need external help and they want to control everything. It's in their like the, the quote unquote quick doctrine. We will own and create like the core technology to our products. And, and it's very powerful and again, a factor in their success, but I think it tends to work against them whenever you get into anything that's ecosystem related. Mm -hmm. And I think, like I said, I think it's fundamentally handicapped the iPad. And the reason why I bring up the iPad and talk about ecosystem and Apple's, I think, tendency to undervalue it. And you're exactly right. The iPhone has a phenomenal ecosystem, but it's more a product of being so so huge, being such a massive addressable market as opposed to, you know, Apple sort of creating the conditions for it. And, the reason why I bring this up in the context of the, of the Mac Pro is the Mac Pro doesn't really do anything for Apple from a financial perspective, right? It's it's a very it's a small product in a small product category relative to the company as a mm. whole, mm-hmm. and the only way to understand and appreciate why the Mac Pro is so important is to understand and appreciate the impact the people who use the Mac Pro have on the Apple mm. ecosystem generally. And that requires understanding and appreciating that Apple's success is not due solely to Apple itself. It is due to people outside of the company using and building on Apple products to create something far greater than Apple can do on its own. And that's always been a struggle for the company, I think, to come to grips with. Yeah, in in the same way, it's. Div- I mean, as hard as it must be for them to acknowledge a mistake, it must be even like it's culturally for all the reasons that we just talked about. It's even harder to acknowledge that you are dependent on someone else, and if you can't acknowledge it, it's really hard to then go about fostering the conditions for that ecosystem to flourish. Like, and, just, it's, e- and it's easier for you to not worry about the fact that the tool that these people uses is completely abandoned. Yeah, and and if it's abandoned, like you lose them from the platform, you lose them from the entire Apple ecosystem, and they start thinking about building elsewhere. Right, and, and I think that's how that's why it took so long, because again, from a fina- if you look at it from a financial perspective, Apple should just kill the whole thing. Mm. It's not worth it to reinvest five hundred million dollars or a billion dollars or however much it is to come up with a new design and manufacture it and all that sort of thing. I mean, it should cost less this time, which we'll get into in a moment, but. It, it's not worth it. It's just not enough people build the iMac Pro, you know, to take care of them. And if you lose them, whatever, it's not going to really impact your bottom line. From a narrow financial perspective, it doesn't make any sense. However, if you think about the ecosystem perspective, it's like, what are you doing, Apple? How can you let this product languish? Don't you appreciate the outsized impact the buyers of this product have not just on the Mac line, but on iPhones, on iPads, on the very nature of the Apple brand and the idea that it's about creativity and design? All that flows not from Apple itself. It flows from what is enabled by Apple. 
I mean, you go back. I mean, we we were joking about that that Schiller Chiat Day email, but you go back into the the point at which Apple ran out of cash. Like the reason that those folks, the, the reason that the company still exists, is because of the deep abiding belief that those folks had in the organization. And and you you think about the 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 introduction of the iPhone and the people that were first purchasing this, it wasn't a mass market thing. And the explosion that happened in terms of the app ecosystem on the iPhone was due to these people being so rusted on to the ecosystem and, and such believers in the ecosystem. And it, it like the app ecosystem exploded on the iPhone. And that is part of the, like one of the biggest moats that the company had. Like you had Microsoft trying to cross the moat by paying developers in order to come onto their own platform. And it wasn't enough because A, they had, they obviously sold a lot of iPhones uh, like at that, that point because the device was fantastic. But part of that was due to the, due to like these app developers building these incredible apps and expressing themselves in these creative ways. And, and now like fast forward 10, 15 years, they're neglecting this very thing that's caused them to be successful. Yeah, well, this is what you see. This is what you see happen so often, right? I mean, when you are successful, it's because of your actions, and when you fail, it's because of external market forces, right? <laughs> yes, right. Totally. The the this was back to what I said at the beginning about assuming people are smart and doing their best. In the case of Apple, it's not just that people are smart and doing their best; that Apple is really great at a lot of things. And it's the cost of being great at some things that you're not great at other things, or that you develop blind spots in in different areas. And that's why it's so interesting to see them screw this up, because you can see where blind spots that we've talked about on multiple occasions ended up with them being in a situation where they're inviting five journalists to talk about product plans for the next two to three years, totally against their nature. Yeah, it is totally against their nature. The 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 crazy thing is like how close this is to what is traditionally something they wouldn't have screwed up. The other thing that that's interesting to think about is yeah, I find it fascinating that so it was at least six months ago they made this decision, and it's not coming out for uh, at least nine more months. So that's fifteen months, you know. And <laughs> it's you know this is a solved problem, right? The idea of building a computer that has a large <laughs> thermal envelope. And can be be easily upgraded. Like, turns out the PC industry has been building that product for thirty years or forty. I mean, years, I, 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 I had friends in high school that were building these things. Right, it's a tower, you know, yep. that you can kind of easily put stuff in and out of. And it's going to take Apple at least fifteen months and, and more than that. And it, it's kind of funny because it get it gets at how powerful this is, and it, it's almost endearing that like Apple is so committed to we have to completely rethink and what is this going to be like for the next 10 years and all sorts of stuff like they they can't just take something off the shelf and like put an apple sheet on it. like they have to do it they have to do it themselves right and it it's so core to the culture for better or worse mostly for better but you can see how again your strengths can be your weaknesses yeah i i mean it's sometimes Sometimes like it's just okay to like leave things the way they are. And I mean, I, I, one of the things, one of the quotes, one of the ideas of Steve Jobs that I appreciated the most is just the extent to which 
Yeah, I mean, it, it went something along the lines of like you see the way things are and most people immediately assume that the way things are is because that's the best way of doing things. But when you when you really dig into it, the reality of it is it's just some guy who is no smarter than you figured out this way and that was good enough and it just kind of stuck and that became the way things are. But the, the the there is another there is another case which is sometimes the way things are is really because that's the best way for them to be and <laughs> right it, like it feels like this is one of those instances where you could have just let this one slide no one would have really minded like the users don't mind like they just want the performance they want OS 10 like okay it's not going to look it's not going to be in moma okay we'll we'll live but it's almost like a point of pride like we're going to come back and we are going to go through the same process we always go through and and question everything and like come up with something that no one ever imagined before right it, like that's a great thing it also though it, it's a little it's a little worrisome because in some respects what apple needs is just they need all pros want, they just want the best possible performance running OS 10. That's what mm. they want. They don't care what the case looks like. They don't care how innovative it is. They just want the highest possible performance running OS 10. And it's almost like, does Apple have the humility to appreciate mm. that's all they want? They don't want an amazing Johnny Ive design. And, you know, is, is Johnny Ive okay with that, right? That <laughs> maybe in this case, you know, his team's contribution isn't really that important to this particular market, which in this particular market, which has an outsized impact on the rest of the company, which means maybe perhaps, you know, Apple doesn't succeed simply because they have beautiful devices they succeed because they have the integration of hardware and software and they have a great ecosystem of applications. Um, there, there's, there's a certain degree of humility that, that will be tested by the development of this product. Yeah, well, it will be interesting to see how it plays out. It will. It, the other thing that I would say about this 15-month timeline, it was in 2001 that Apple went from uh, John Rubenstein traveling in Japan in February 2001, them showing him this one-point-inch hard drive they didn't know what to do with, to coming back, Apple coming up with the idea of the iPod, developing, designing it, developing it, manufacturing it, and putting it on sale on October 23rd, 2001, nine months later. Like, Apple conceived of, created, designed, manufactured the product that would completely transform the trajectory of the company in less than nine months. But can't, can't, can't build a Mac Pro in, in, in less than 15. It's true, but like you, you have to appreciate how different the context was to understand why that, why that's the case. Like they were, they were still on the ropes a little bit. Like they had pivoted the company away from video editing towards music. And there was this belief that they had already missed the boat and it became then this existential crisis. And you have a company that is focused on getting into the consumer market, feeling like they've missed the boat. Maybe they're going to miss the wave. Maybe this threatens the existence of the company facing what is effectively an existential threat and it's all hands on deck. And that is so different from the position they're in now when you are as a, partly as a result of of going through those existential crises and the products that were then delivered, the iPod and then the iPhone, like developing the most 
the the most successful consumer product of all time and everybody who is a successful engineer inside of Apple right now wanting to focus on building that next iPhone however amazing it might be and all the organization focused on that because that is the thing that that matters and is delivering and it's it's a lot harder to build on this little side project even if you do recognize it's important when you've got all your resources focused in that way yeah, it, it, you've written the article like the the curse of success, and it, it, one of the many curses is that y- your your sort of pain function is 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 hidden and delayed, right? It's like you're on morphine all the time, right? And because the problems with the the Mac Pro go back to 2010, 2011, like whenever this current design was conceptualized, and then it had to come out, and then it took some degree of time to realize it was succeeding, and then it took some further amount of time to appreciate that we're going to start losing a certain class of creative pros and developers that is going to impact our main products multiple years down the line and to be in touch with that multi-year, multi-decade sort of impact of decisions. I mean, this is what's so difficult about managing technology companies is so many decisions that matter are made years in advance of when they manifest themselves. And that's another reason why this went on for so long. There just weren't there weren't the feedback mechanisms to realize that something was amiss because the iPhone was so phenomenally successful and the other products were doing so well that there wasn't that feedback loop to realize there is a problem going on and until it took, again, we don't know for sure, but it sure seems like it took this MacBook Pro where Apple invested, I mean, to say Apple is abandoning the Mac makes no sense when they invested all this money in the Mac, in the MacBook Pro in this touch bar and stuff. But when people are like, no, stop, that's not what we want. We, we want a tool. We want a mm. pro device. We don't want a consumer device. For Apple, whoa, 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 what's, what, whoa, my, wow, you know, wow, we, yeah, ugh. boy, we need to do something. It's going to, we're, people are going nuts. Oh, wait, um, I have an idea. Let's review our future product roadmap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad something made them do it, right? But yeah, it, it, it's, it's. I mean, there's a. I think that point that you made in there, though, about how the the feedback loops, the su- success almost deadens the sensitivity to the problems. Like when you are when you are lean, or when you're on the when you're on the edge with something, like you are watching it and you are fiercely aware of everything that's happening. But when you're like the, you're you're fattened by the success of the iPhone, it deadens your ability to to to, to even detect that there's a problem and. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, another one of those points that you just made. Like the extent to which these these it takes time for this to filter through, and so often people like to attribute cause and effect in such a short period of time. Like, uh, oh, w- one month later something happens, and it was it was caused by the thing that happened the months before. But the time frames for so much of these things are two, three, four years, and it was it's the legacy of the previous leader that that results in this fantastic product. But it's oftentimes the person who's in there in the seat at the time it gets released that gets all the credit or all the blame as the case might be. Yeah, and in particularly the when that feed the other thing with that feedback loop, just to kind of reiterate the point, it's a feedback loop that kind of manifests itself in an area that Apple we've already discussed has a hard time sort of acknowledging and appreciating the sort of yeah. feedback loops and as far as its ecosystem goes and all that. It really there was a perfect storm in many respects about this device. And that's why it makes it interesting. And we're not here to dump on Apple. We're it, 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 what's interesting is when when successful companies fail and when they fail not by being dumb but by 
by making mistakes that are actually manifestations of things endemic to the company and the culture that are both good and bad because there are two sides of the same coin. Yeah, that's a recurring theme. It is, it is. Anyhow, our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring this episode of Exponent, and I will talk to you next week. Sounds good, mate. Have a good one. All right, yep, bye-bye.